Is prophecy just a prediction based on likelihood? Can God choose to limit what he does know and doesn't know? We're going to talk about these things today and a lot more on BibleStudyPodcast.org starting now. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to BibleStudyPodcast.org. Today is Wednesday, February the 25th of 2009, and as always, I'm your host, Toby Logsdon, and welcome to all of you guys. It's such a blessing to have you guys here with us. Today, we're going to be covering part two of our lesson on God's omniscience, and of course, this is all a part of our series called Knowing God, and the purpose of this study is to know God, to talk about what we do know about God based on both scripture and uh, nature. So anyway, God bless you guys, and thank you so much for joining us today. Hope you guys are having a fantastic week. Today it is like close to 70 degrees here in Arkansas, and this is probably the warmest day uh, we've had since we've been here. This is really nice, and uh, in fact, we've got all the doors and windows open because it's just so nice outside today. And, you know, this uh, this past Monday, I brought my son fishing, and it was like 45 or 50 degrees outside, and it was just, it was a little bit too cold for either one of us to really enjoy it, but today would have been a great day to be out there fishing. Uh, but anyway, I was talking to Brian, uh, you know, of course, we're going to be planting this church together, and we decided that at some point we need to work this into a regular routine, you know, going fishing and everything. So it's just really a neat time for us to to get away and to pray together and just to be away from all the distractions that life has to offer. And maybe I'll leave my cell phone at home so I won't be posting my uh, my Facebook status uh, from the lake or the river or wherever we happen to be. But anyway, you know, within like an hour to two hours of here, there have got to be 50 to 100 places to fish. It's unbelievable. This is like a fisherman's dream. And I, I'm not really much of a fisherman. I really don't have that much experience fishing. Uh, but I do love to fish. So, um, you know, the times that I've gone, I've really enjoyed it. And so, I don't know, maybe I'll try to turn it into something of a hobby while I'm here. But anyway, uh, God bless you guys, and thank you so much for joining us. Let's go ahead and get started with a quick word of prayer. Father God, we just thank you again for your word. We thank you so much that you've revealed yourself to us. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us uh, information about you, things that we can know about you based on your word, and uh, things that we can learn through logic and nature. So, Lord, we just want to find out more about you today. We want to learn about you, and we want to refine uh, what we do believe about you and what we know about you in order that we can know you better and love you better and grow closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, like I said at the beginning of the lesson, this is part two of uh, of our study on God's omniscience. And so, really, if you haven't listened to part one of this uh, of this mini series, go ahead and go back to our previous lesson on God's omniscience, in order that you can understand kind of where we're coming from, why we believe what we believe, uh, what the church has historically affirmed about God's omniscience, and so on and so forth. But you know, when we consider the doctrine of God's omniscience, we have to understand that there are at least three primary schools of thought pertaining to God's knowledge. First, there is the open theist position, which is what we're going to be covering today. The open theist position affirms that uh, while certain future events and things are necessary uh, and must happen and are thus 
infallibly known by God, the free acts of all human beings are contingent upon the free will of people, and thus they're not infallibly known by God. And this position, the open theist position, is represented by writers such as uh, Greg Boyd and Clark Pinnock and John Sanders. Secondly, there is a position referred to as Molinism, or uh, middle knowledge, which teaches that God has three types of knowledge. First, there's natural knowledge, which is God's knowledge of all possible worlds, including uh, that which is necessary and what is possible, and this nature is essential to God, uh, according to Molinism. Second, God has free knowledge, which is God's knowledge of the actual world, as uh, as Norman Geisler summarizes, he says, After a free act of his will, God knows these things absolutely, but such knowledge is not essential to God. End quote. And then three, God has middle knowledge, according to Molinism, or uh, you know, the middle knowledge position. And middle knowledge is basically the idea that there are some things which must occur necessarily, and thus God knows those things infallibly. He knows that they'll happen infallibly. And there are things which occur as an exercise in free will, and thus are contingent upon free will. Uh, These are things that God doesn't necessarily know, these things that are contingent upon free will. And from what I can tell, William Lane Craig is an example of, uh, of a modern Molinist. And a third primary position is referred to as the Thomistic position, named after Thomas Aquinas. And this position teaches that God knows all things which are both potential and actual, including all future events and actions which are performed in an exercise of free will. And if you'll remember, it's only recently that anyone has started to postulate that God's exhaustive, infallible foreknowledge are incompatible with uh, with mankind's free will. Now, as you might have guessed, Thomas Aquinas would be a representative of the Thomistic position, since it's named after him and everything, uh, as would Norman Geisler and Paul Helm and myself, as you probably would have predicted by now, based uh, on part one of this lesson. Now, scores of volumes have been written on this matter from these three positions, and let me just tell you that trying to fit everything into a single lesson would be like trying to cram a size 12 foot into a size 3 shoe. Uh, So with that being said, we're actually going to make this a three-part series. We're going to discuss the Molinist position in our next lesson. We're going to discuss open theism today, but uh, we just don't have time to consider uh, those two two other positions, Molinism and open theism, uh, in this one lesson. So what we're using to refute these positions is uh, is the Thomistic position. So that's being included in both of these lessons. But anyway, we're going to talk about open theism today. So without any further ado, let's go ahead and start by taking a look at some of the arguments presented by representatives of open theism. First of all, Dallas Willard has theorized in recent years that if God is all-powerful and can do anything that's logically possible then it's possible for God to voluntarily choose to limit his knowledge of certain things. And by doing this, God can supposedly still know all things, including the free exercises of of free will by people, but he simply blocks some things out of his immediate awareness and keeps some things in his immediate awareness. Now, why would God do such a thing? 
Well, according to this theory, he does it so that he can interact with human beings non-presumptuously. Because if God knew what people would do ahead of time, according to Willard, uh, he would have already made his mind up. So to prevent this from happening, God decides that there are certain things that he just wants to find out as he goes along. Now, let's go ahead and respond to that. In response, I say nonsense. Honestly, folks, um, Dallas Willard is far too intelligent to actually be postulating something like this, and I I can't believe that um, he actually came up with this theory. But first of all, there's absolutely no biblical basis for this position to speak of. The only way to arrive at this view uh, from reading scripture is to interpret various figures of figurative speech literally. For example, when God says that he'll forget our sin, or when he says that he'll remember our sin no more. You have to take those literally in order to arrive at this position. And we must remember that the Bible attributes human qualities to God not because God has these human qualities, but they, they're attributed to God as a means by which something about the infinite can be expressed in a finite manner. Now, if we interpret the anthropomorphic language of the Bible in a literal sense, we also have to believe that God has a body, since the Bible speaks of things like the eyes of God or the hands and feet of God. And further, because God is simple in his essence, God can't separate his knowledge into things that he wants to know and things that he doesn't want to know. He can't compartmentalize his knowledge. That would imply that the part of him which is aware of certain things is separate and distinct from the part of him where he has, you know, I guess, filed away the things that he's unaware of. If God is compartmentalized in such a way, then he couldn't be infinite because that which is infinite can't be divided. For example, if uh, let's say you had an infinite number of jelly beans. Man, you could get fat eating all that stuff. But anyway, let's say you have an infinite number of jelly beans, right? And you want to divide what you have in half. Well, how would you do such a thing? How would you divide your jelly beans in half? Well, logically, you couldn't because you can't divide infinity by half. So likewise, if God is infinite in his being, then God is infinite in his knowledge. If God is infinite in his knowledge, then his knowledge can't be compartmentalized. And for the record, I don't believe that Dallas Willard is actually an open theist, but this theory is so unbelievably similar to the arguments of open theists, I felt that this would be capable of being categorized with uh, this lesson on open theism. Uh, John Sanders, who I know is an open theist, argues that if God knows a future thing infallibly, then God can't intervene to change it from happening. He can't intervene to, uh, to change the future. And if God can't intervene to change the future, then he can't interact with his creation. And so therefore, God can't know the future exhaustively and infallibly. He writes, quote, The problem arises because of the fact that what God previsions is what will actually occur. Divine foreknowledge, by definition, is always correct. If what will actually happen is for example, the Holocaust, then God knows what is going to happen and cannot prevent it from happening, since his foreknowledge is never mistaken, end quote. Now, in response to this, we must note that uh, that we believe that God is infinite and eternal, and as such, there are no befores and afters with God. There are no, uh, mo- there's not a moment-to-moment uh, chronological sequence for things with God. There's only one eternal present now. 
uh, God is outside of time. And thus, when we say that God has foreknowledge, we don't mean that God sees or knows something before it happens in a literal sense. Rather, uh, he knows all things in one eternal present now. God doesn't know things by watching them happen or by watching them transpire because God is incorporeal and thus has no literal eyes with which he can observe things. And so therefore God's knowledge isn't based on things and events which are outside of himself. Rather, God's knowledge is based on the fact that he knows himself perfectly and all things and events pre-exist in God as the primary and efficient cause of all things and events. And further, we have to note that because God is simple, his knowledge is identical to his being. His being is independent of and distinct from his creation. And time is an aspect of his creation. And so therefore, God's knowledge of things and events which are within creation are independent of creation. Clark Pinnock actually offers a a similar argument, writing that, quote, if God knows already what will happen in the future, then God's knowing is part of the past and is now fixed, impossible to change. And he continues writing that since God is infallible, it is completely impossible that things will turn out differently than God expects them to. And therefore, if God knows that a person is going to perform it, then it is impossible that a person fail to perform it. So one does not have a free choice whether or not to perform it, end quote. Now, as we discussed in our um, in our previous discussion on the historical affirmation of God's omniscience by uh, theologians and philosophers from the church through the ages, there isn't a necessary incompatibility between the exercise of a human being's free will and God's foreknowledge or his omniscience pertaining to that action. Uh, Jonathan Edwards and many other uh, hyper-Calvinists may have offered multiple other possibilities. Um, For example, they may have argued that that God uh, put the desire to perform a certain action in a person's heart, and so the person would pursue that desire, but they would do so freely, um, and it would you know, the the desire would stem from an act of God. And I don't think uh, that this is the best explanation. So um, instead, you know, I would argue that because God knows everything from an eternal present now, as is necessitated by his eternal, infinite, unchanging nature, God knows which freely chosen, freely exercised actions will be taken in a way that's similar to how we know the past. That's how he knows the future, a similar way to how we know the past. Of course, uh, this analogy falls a little bit short since there's no past with God, but that's why it's an analogy. It's a little bit different. But the fact that we know something that happened in the past doesn't mean that we made it happen in a similar way. The fact that God knows something in the future doesn't mean he's going to make it happen. He just knows that it happens. And I would argue, uh, essentially, that God's will and his knowledge work in harmonious unity. That's because God is simple. And because God is simple, his knowledge is identical. That is, it's one with his will. And his will is identical to his knowledge. And because he is eternal and infinite, we can also say that God knows infinitely and eternally what he wills infinitely and eternally, and vice versa. And again, you know, I think it's worth pointing out that Pinnock uses language like God knows what will happen in the future, you know, stuff like that. He uses a lot of language which pertains to time. However, as we've pointed out, there are no befores and afters with God. There's only an eternal 
present now. And so therefore, open theists such as Clark Pinnock and, and John Sanders wrongly assume that God knows things in the same way that we know them, that is, chronologically. So again, you know, this argument totally fails. It just doesn't work. It doesn't add up with what we know about God. And you know, one of the most common arguments that you'll hear from open theists is that the future is, uh, right now, the future would be considered potential. And so therefore, the future isn't yet real. It isn't yet actualized. Once the potential of the future uh, does become actual, it becomes real. So it's not real until we actually hit a future moment. Uh, John Sanders wrote that, quote, though God's knowledge is coextensive with reality in that God knows all that can be known, the future actions of free creatures are not yet a reality, and so there is nothing to be known, end quote. And that's a very, very common argument. I, I guarantee you that if you're talking to open theists, you will get this argument. Now, in response, uh, Thomas Aquinas actually answered this very objection over 800 years prior to John Sanders raising this objection. Uh, anyway, what Aquinas said was that the future is indeed real, because reality consists both of what is actual and that which is potential. Only that which is logically impossible is not real. And further, Scripture reveals that God clearly does know the future, and this is the basis for the test of prophecy, as we discussed last week. If a prophet tells us something which uh, which doesn't actually transpire, which doesn't occur, they're a false prophet, and they're supposed to be put to death. And you know, the Bible contains 191 prophecies specifically referring to the Messiah, to the coming Messiah, in addition to the multitudes of other prophecies that uh, that are found in Scripture. And it's possible, you know, uh, it's possible to make a few predictions about the future uh, and to make those predictions accurately, but the more things one predicts, the more potential there is for error. And yet each one of those 191 prophecies of the coming Messiah were literally fulfilled. The odds of that happening without God infallibly knowing the future are so astronomical, so unbelievable. It's simply more reasonable to believe that God knows the future infallibly than to believe that he just by chance correctly predicted 191 things about Jesus, many of which a person would have no control over, such as the fact that, uh, that one, he was born of a virgin, two, he was born in the town of Bethlehem, three, he's from the line of Judah, etc., etc., uh, however, Sanders predicted this response, and for that reason, he wrote, quote, Given the depth and breadth of God's knowledge of the present situation, God forecasts what he thinks will happen. In this regard, God is the consummate social scientist predicting what will happen, end quote. And he further notes that the fact that God doesn't know the future exhaustively and infallibly, quote, does leave open the possibility that God might be mistaken about some points as the biblical record acknowledges, end quote. In other words, what he's saying here, what Sanders is saying here, is that it's entirely possible that God could make mistakes when he prophesies. Well, you know, some open theists do protect themselves against uh, being outcast as complete heretics by simultaneously affirming that if God wants to know something about the future, he can. And this is a distinction that we've made in the past in these lessons, that open theists believe that God chooses not to know the future, but, uh, but that he can know the future if he chooses to. Greg Boyd writes that, quote, many prophecies pertaining to individuals can also be understood as examples of the Lord establishing 
particular perimeters ahead of time. End quote. And he goes on to say that, um, he gives the example that, quote, God named Hosea and Cyrus and declared their accomplishments before they were born. This decree obviously set strict parameters around the freedom of the parents in naming these individuals. It also restricted the scope of freedom these individuals could exercise as it pertained to particular foreordained activities, end quote. In other words, uh, the parents of Hosea and Cyrus weren't free to name their children otherwise because God had established parameters for their parents in this instance. And in response, we affirm that God declared the names and accomplishments of Hosea and Cyrus ahead of time, but that's because he knows all future things and events exhaustively and infallibly. You know, this theory fails for the same reasons that Dallas Willard's theory falls short. God doesn't have parts, and thus does not compartmentalize his knowledge into things he knows and things he doesn't know. And further, again, we affirm that God is a simple and necessary being. Because he is both simple and necessary, he's not contingent. If God can't be contingent, then his knowledge can't be contingent. If God's knowledge isn't contingent, then it's necessary, just as he is necessary. But again, the fact that he knows that someone will freely choose to do something in no way uh, necessitates or indicates that his knowledge negates their freedom. Simply put, if open theism is correct, then God isn't unchanging. Rather, he's constantly changing because he's constantly learning new things. And if God is changing, then God isn't pure actuality. If God isn't pure actuality, then he has potential. If he has potential, then he's contingent. If he's contingent, he's not eternal or infinite. Do you see how the view of God completely collapses under the, uh, this view, this theory of open theism? Well, you know, I hope I've covered most of the objections that you guys have come across, if uh, this is something that you've researched at all. And, um, you know, if you do end up talking to an open theist, these are the the uh, justifications that they'll offer for their position. So hopefully this helps. And of course, if you guys have any questions uh, or comments, you can email me at cleanslate.ministries at hotmail.com. But honestly, you know what, if you have any questions about this stuff, if you want to learn more about this stuff, I'll tell you exactly which book you need to get. Dr. Norman Geisler wrote Systematic Theology, Volume 2, God and Creation. This is all covered in that book, and that's actually, you know, the, the book that we had when I took the class. This is the, the book that I learned out of. These are only some of the arguments that he brings up and responds to in his book. So definitely, if you want to learn more about this stuff, get Dr. Geisler's book, uh, Systematic Theology, Volume 2. So anyway, be sure to check out our next lesson as well, in which we discuss Molinism, or the possibility that God has this middle knowledge. So anyway, God bless you guys, and thank you so much for listening today. I'll see you next time on BibleStudyPodcast.org. Keep growing closer to Jesus.